I'm your host, John Averly. Today my guest is, and you're asking yourself, why would John play secret agent man? John really has no idea when he thought of it, but it came into his head, I think, last night. Today my guest is Father Joseph Narog. Yes, he is a priest, but also prior to being a priest, he was involved in uh, counterterrorism for the United States of America. So obviously we have two stories to tell here with, with, with the father. And, uh, again, Secret Agent Man, which is perfect. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Father. Good morning, John. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry. It just fits. I just thought it was your usual opening. I didn't no, know you, it. No, no, no. I, I tend to mix it up. I had, uh, well, I've had one a lot. Look at Bryn's enjoying it. Even she's enjoying it there. Well, let's kind of jump right into it here. Okay. Now, what, what uh, branch were you with as far as doing your work in counterterrorism? Well, I actually started out, my first job was with Army Intelligence. Okay. Were you in the Army itself? No. Okay. Civilian. Civilian. Right after graduate school, started work at the Pentagon for two years, went down to Fort Bragg, North Carolina with the Joint Special Operations Command. Very familiar with it. And then from there... JSOC. That's right. Yep. JSOC. And came back up to Defense Intelligence Agency, and that was my parent agency for most of my career. Okay. The now, Department now, of Defense. Now, you went to St. Joe's, St. Joseph College. That's you're, right. You're in the Philadelphia area. Right. Uh, we talked, we've talked. we actually talked a lot over the last few weeks, and mm-hmm. we've enjoyed our conversations. Right. You're from Pottsville. Pottsville, Pennsylvania. Okay. My hometown. And uh, where did you go to graduate school? I went to University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Okay. Okay. And got him. What was the major? What was your undergraduate? Foreign, foreign Affairs. Foreign Affairs. Yep. Interesting. Did yeah. you know this is what you wanted to do when you came out of high school? I actually knew for some reason from when I was younger. Um, Seriously? Yeah. I had a great interest in learning about other countries, seeing the world. I wanted to travel. My first desire as I got into high school was my goal was to go to the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown and be in the Diplomatic Corps. Interesting. Now. Yeah. As we've talked, we're going to take this as far as we can, as right. far as different conversations. And, uh, you know, if I get a touch on something real sensitive, just kind of give me the high sign there. And, sure. You know, we'll back off. Because, I, I you know, obviously, I, I think people are sitting there right now, because I'd be sitting there going, my God, he's a priest? <laughs> Counterterrorism? What kind of questions can I ask him? Are they okay questions? But like I said, you know, we'll figure that all out. Sure. How many years were you in? In the government? In the government. Fifteen years. Okay. And you worked for different branches, you were saying. Right. Now, were you an analyst? I started out, my first job, uh, I was quite lucky. I Just to back up a little bit, when I graduated from Virginia, I went back home to Pottsville unemployed. And every day I'd get about five rejection letters in the mail. And it uh, got quite difficult thinking, you know, I've spent six straight years, St. Joe's University, University of Virginia, no job. Um, but, you know, Faith helped me through that period, prayed a lot, and uh, everything started to happen at once. I went down to Washington, D.C. for an interview with a, a think tank, and uh, they wanted me to do a research project on liberation theology at the time, which was sort of combining my foreign affairs love with my uh, background in Catholicism. And uh, having gone to St. Joe's, I had done some work there, of course, in mm-hmm. theology, and my advisor at University of Virginia had a great uh, understanding of the importance of Catholic thought in Latin America. So I got involved. My my master's thesis was on liberation theology, uh, especially in Mexico. So um, 
basically, uh, I'm in Washington, D.C. for that interview, and we invade Grenada during that time. 1983. And my best well. friend from graduate school was working out at CIA, and uh, he started talking about the Latin American reaction, and his boss said, well, how would you know that? And he said, well, my roommate uh, in grad school studied foreign affairs, and we talk a lot. Latin America was my area. Gotcha. So before I knew it, I was out at headquarters for a job interview after that uh, week. Uh, for an analyst position, and uh, they hired me, but it would take six months at least to get my clearances, etc. Yeah. So I went back up to Pottsville, biding my time working in a little department store. And that's going to be a real weird thing. Department <laughs> store. Soon I'm going to be doing counterterrorism work. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That'd be shocking to me. It was. Um, just a waiting period, basically. Yeah. But while I was waiting, I was cutting my parents' lawn for the first, last time for okay. that uh, season, and my mother yells out the door, I'll never forget, she goes, the Pentagon's on the phone. And the Pentagon's on the phone, I forgot I even applied for the job, and it was an analyst position yeah. for Latin America. And I said, well, you know what, I'll go down, it's worth at least looking at, and if they would hire me right away and I could do all of Latin America, I'll take it. Went down, interviewed with this colonel, it was the assistant chief of staff for intelligence office, and by the time I got back out after that weekend, they called to hire me. So I called CIA and said, I'm very sorry, but they're going to hire me right away, and I'm going to do all of Latin America, which is what I really want to do to start. So it was a two-year internship working at the Pentagon in this assistant chief of staff for intelligence office, and it was an incredible job for somebody. You know, basically, at that point, I was 24 years old. It's a lot of responsibility. It was a lot, and more than I ever imagined yeah. to the point where I would have to brief personally like this, sitting right next to each other, Secretary of the Army. So yeah. yeah. Well, they're counting on this, especially, you know, special operations teams. They're counting on your intelligence right. to get them through. And, you know, uh, knowing some of these people, experiencing some of this stuff myself, it's not all the time is the stuff correct. <laughs> Sometimes it's not yeah. even in the ballpark, but it's not an easy job. What exactly right. does an analyst do? I mean, we know the title. Mm -hmm. But what's the breakdown of the job? Right. Basically, in, in this first job, and in just in analysis in general, it's, it's really having the ability to get the information that's coming into you, sifting through it and sorting out uh, patterns. Uh, depends on what analysis you're doing. And initially, I was doing political military analysis. So my job was sort of look at what's happening in the countries of Latin America that would affect the U.S. Army, where we might have some involvement El later Salvador, on. Back then, El Salvador. Yeah, Central America Central was America. very busy at that time. Um, but eventually, as I got involved in counterterrorism, I really had to look at the whole world. And my job then as an analyst would be follow uh, what were established terrorist groups, groups that were emerging, figuring out who belonged to them, what they were planning to do, and then how we might warn the people that we were charged to protect. And that was the one thing that kept me going through all of that, was knowing that my job was to make sure that innocent civilians in particular would be protected. How are you uh, gathering your intelligence? Inside people? Uh, well, you know, I, mean, I mean, I know you can't. I, mm -hmm. I'm just trying to throw it out there right. in a sense that I mean, nod or agree if you want to. <laughs> I, mean, I assume there, there's people on the inside. I assume mm -hmm. that there's information being passed as people might defect or leave their country and so forth. Right. How confident do you guys feel with the information that's coming out? I mean, is there a filtering type system yes. where you sit there and go, okay, this one's not BS, this one's on the right. mark? It's a combination of not just the analysts, but the people that are preparing the reports uh, would put a tagline on the reporting indicating the reliability of the source. And so we would kind of get a feel for things in working with those people that would put the taglines on there. Um, you know, it might say, for example, this is from a very reliable source, or this is from third-hand information. You know, so you'd have some sense of... 
of where this was coming from, but we would get reporting in, in these particular places from all over. I mean, you would obviously get State Department reporting, Department of Defense reporting, uh, all different kinds of intelligence. There'd be human intelligence, signals intelligence, uh, photographs, and our job was to piece all of that together. Uh, I would work on a terrorism summary, write articles, do warning reports, uh, really trying to look at what the threat might That's be. a lot of responsibility. It was. I mean, especially at 24 years old. Yeah. You're, you're talking about... I mean, you're, you're sending stuff up the chain that's, that's going to you know, infect people's lives. I mean, you're talking life and death. Yeah, yeah, that's what was... Uh, I think that in that particular field, again, I got more involved in counterterrorism as I went along, but uh, in that particular field, I think there's a lot of burnout, a lot of people who are... You know, you, you can only do that for so long without, yeah. you know... Feeling. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, that's... You take it home with you. Yeah, yeah. You and know, so that literally, which was, that was one of the good things about that work is that you couldn't take anything home with you. In your mind, you might, yeah. but you couldn't work on anything at home because of the level of clearances and what we were dealing with. So it was kind of nice to be able to leave work at work. Separate it. And just, and not be able to talk about it, you know. I'm curious, now, what, why Latin America? Is, mm -hmm. is that uh, based on the religious beliefs you have? Because Catholicism is very strong down there. Did you feel a connection to it? Well, actually, I think I got involved originally because in um, starting back in grade school, but definitely in high school, I studied Spanish. And in studying the Spanish language, I felt that that was a, a language that would be most useful to me if you looked at the demographics just of our own country, et cetera. But the number of countries in the world that would speak Spanish, I thought that would be uh, useful. And because of studying Spanish, as a result, I learned more about Latin America, and that's what got me involved. But then when I went to St. Joe's, one of my best friends at St. Joe's, I lived in a house there for four years, is from the Dominican Republic. Okay. And uh, I got to go visit him and his family. That was my first trip out of the United States, other than Canada, was to go to the Caribbean, to the Dominican Republic, and really see it uh, from the inside with somebody who lived there and grew up kind there. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's fascinating. More like almost a third world country. Oh, definitely. I mean, almost, I mean, seriously, I mean, you know, there is either the haves and then the many have nots. It's, it's the first time I think I really had my eyes open to real poverty in the world and to see how a lot of people live. And I think it was that seed that got planted in me as well that came uh, later on in terms of this call to religious life. Oh, yeah, we're going to get into that. The whole thing with <laughs> looking at poverty in our world and, and how we can try to help people. Now, when you were doing your work, they have you, like, locked down in a bunker? <laughs> I mean, you had to have windows because I had a friend of mine that did intelligence work for the Air Force. Mm -hmm. They had in a building with no windows. Right. For much of my career, I did not have windows. No. You didn't Eventually, see the sun. I did. You didn't see the sun. That's, no. You wouldn't know if it was night or day or what was going on in that sense. Twelve-hour shifts. Uh, it depended on on the job. At certain jobs, I did have watch duty and those kind of responsibilities, but there were some long hours, definitely. Yeah, I can imagine. Mm -hmm. Hotline to, uh, to the Joint Chiefs, if you need it. <laughs> um, if you could. Yeah, I'll put it out there again. Okay, let's put it this way. Mm -hmm. I would assume mm -hmm. that there's a direct connection somewhere in the hierarchy. Of course. You know, that if there's an emergency, right. you know, you can you can see that mm -hmm. what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I had to brief some interesting people. One of, one of the funnier stories in, early in my career is I had to brief the uh, civilian aides to the Secretary of the Army, and this would include people like Joseph Coors of the Coors Corporation yep. and a lot of uh, high-powered people, and I'm up on stage, and the pointer they gave me was taller than me, and the screen <laughs> behind me was like a movie theater screen, and I was doing a presentation on the Soviet-Cuban threat in Latin America at uh -huh. the time, and I'm pointing, and <laughs> I pull the pointer 
back and bop myself off the head <laughs> as the Secretary of Defense was waiting in the wings to come out and do the next presentation. So it was a bit embarrassing. And at one point, somebody asked me the question, what's the population of Cuba? And, you know, it, there's only so many things you can retain in your mind. Yeah. And I didn't anticipate that being one of the questions. So I had to try to divert it by talking about things like oil and sugar and the relationship yeah. between the Soviets and the Cubans. And I think he eventually forgot that he asked the question. Well, I think but, I told you the other day, I was, we were talking, I told you I interviewed Khrushchev's son. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think I'm, you know, and I know I you know I told you that uh, I asked him what his father thought mm -hmm. you know of, of Castro and his his answer was I think I thought he was an ass yeah. <laughs> didn't like the guy thought he was like a peasant mm. yeah your opinion mm -hmm. now this is your opinion I'm okay. asking uh, uh, on this was he ever truly a threat do you think I mean was Cuba ever truly a threat because that statement by uh, by Khrushchev's son to me mm -hmm. led me to believe that. The Soviet Union would only lend so much assistance, and then they were out on their own. Right. In my opinion, I think that uh, at the height of the Cold War, uh, there's no doubt, not so much in and of Cuba itself or Castro, but the connections with the Soviet Union and all that was going on in the world, that indeed there was things to be concerned about. Yeah, okay, so you, so you do the work so the rest of us can sleep well at night. <laughs> That's the truth, you know that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of work out there... Uh, you know, thank God for the people that do it because I often use this analogy. People like their meat. Mm -hmm. They want it on their plate. They want to enjoy it. Right. You don't want to know how it got there. Mm -hmm. You do not want to mm -hmm. know the process <laughs> which it took to get the meat to your place. Right. I right. think the same things here in our freedom. You really don't want to know mm -hmm. what goes on behind the scenes right. to secure that freedom. Yes. That's probably why the government budget for uh, defense is so high. Well, certainly uh, I saw it increase with counterterrorism over the years. Um, well, that's for a good become, reason. Well, as we were saying before, you know, the the you were there during throughout the Cold War process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was in the military, coming from the Cold War changeover to the Middle East problems. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, totally two different types of wars. One in the Cold War was uh, political, mm -hmm. political ideology. How you would, you know, my my uh, government's better than your government, form of government. Mm -hmm. Now we're dealing with religious fanaticism. Mm -hmm. How do you see that? And we're going to get more, as I said, uh, how you became a Catholic priest. But mm -hmm. as, a, as, a, as a priest right now, mm -hmm. how do you see that fanaticism? How, how does that come across to you? You've done both. Now, you've right. been in counterterrorism, so you know what goes on with mm -hmm. these people. Right. But then your religious belief system, do you feel sympathy? Do you see a little bit of, of what they're trying to do? Or is it just so far out in left field you can't really grasp it? Well, I was really careful even when I was in the government. I, had, I tried to keep a perspective that I have more now even more so because of what I do as a priest, but very careful to say when we would do our training courses, and that's a large part of what I did in counterterrorism, I trained analysts, uh, was to be to make the point that when we talk about this kind of terrorism, it's a fringe element of a particular group. Um, and to not paint an entire culture or religion with that brush that, um, you know, in terms of Islam, et cetera, you can't say that that is the threat. And I, I don't even like the language of saying that the current situation is one of war. I never thought it should be called a war on terrorism. What would you call it? I would call it um, a problem to be dealt with. Um, because not sexy, though. I know it's not sexy, and that's the problem. I mean, I think that was part of that terminology is to try to get the monies, et cetera, and people can relate more to the... Well, it sells it. If you're sitting there watching TV and, mm -hmm. you know, the president comes on and says, you know, we're at a, we're at a battle with, you know, war on terrorism mm -hmm. right now, we mm -hmm. need this, this, and this, if you just say we've got a problem yeah. or a situation that has to be handled, right. it's not going to sell. Do, do you think it's oversold then? 
Well, I don't, I don't think it's oversold, but I think that in using that terminology, especially among we Americans, my opinion is that when we think of war, it's something that we think we can win and move on. That's our, our concept of war. War is to be won. We win the war. We move on. And if you look at the history of terrorism, terrorism is not going to go away. That's a hard message to sell as well. Our goal would be to try to decrease the amount of terrorism that we see around the world. But uh, if you look at history, it's not going to go away. Well, it's like Afghanistan. They've been invaded how many times? Mm -hmm. The last time with the Russians, you know, they got bogged down eventually. You know, that became their Vietnam. That's right. You mm -hmm. know, we have, uh, I said from, from jump, I, I was hoping that Iraq would not become another Vietnam. I think it has. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of similarities between Vietnam and how we're handling the Iraq war. Uh, I think there's a, a, a lot of people not held accountable. Again, these are my opinions. Right. It's different stuff. I'm not speaking for you. <laughs> I'm just saying, and you can nod or whatever you want there. <laughs> but, the, but that's how I see things. Mm -hmm. you know, but the thing is, too, we were just saying about how it gets, you know, your freedom becomes for you. I, it's got to be scary if for you on the inside with what you were doing to have to pull all these strings to balance things. Because, I mean, if you make a mistake, it could be a very costly mistake. Right. You know, that's got to be, I assume your faith was, was tested many times <laughs> on things. Well, it, it definitely came into play. Uh, and the, the way it came into play was the fact that every day we'd be looking at information, as you said, you don't want to know how the yeah. dinner is prepared. Yep. The things that make the headlines, especially when it involves terrorism, are the successes of the terrorist. What you don't usually see are the successes in preventing terrorist attacks. Uh, so, and, and we'd often say they only have to be right once, we have to be right all the time. And to live in that kind of environment to make sure that nothing ever happens and to always be working to make sure that doesn't happen is is trying. And also when you talk about the the threats that we would see, it's negative all the time. We're talking about potential bombings, kidnappings, assassinations, hijackings. I know we mentioned in a conversation yeah. we had a couple of weeks ago that I started really, it was towards the end of 1983. So I was working through all of this in the time there was the hostage takings in Lebanon, the airplane hijackings, the Achille Laro passenger ship that was hijacked. You, It, it was just a constant negative side of humanity. I remember that. I remember uh, Flight 007, the career in airlines. Mm -hmm. uh, Soviets shot that out of the sky in September of 83. Mm -hmm. uh, an accident. It was an accident, they said. Uh, definitely not an accident. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you had the uh, invasion of Grenada. I think two weeks before that was the uh, bombing of the, uh, in Beirut, of, Beirut of the embassy. Marine Beirut barracks. The, the, the barracks, which mm -hmm. was uh, horrific. I still remember the scenes as a 15-year-old kid looking at this and mm -hmm. knowing at some point I'm going to be in the military in the next three to five years. <laughs> Is this what I got to look forward right. to? Mm -hmm. the, um, there was that, 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 that kind of a, a rash of incidents there in 85. Mm -hmm. uh, the Aquila Aro. Right, um, TWA. TWA. Mm -hmm. The TWA one fascinated me mm -hmm. because they were constantly taking off and landing they were being denied access I think Athens didn't even want them mm -hmm. if I recall and they had no choice because it was coming in whether they liked it or not how do now again all the government whatever you can say right how difficult is it to negotiate with other governments in in times like this I mean did you have to show an outright we need to do this or you have to like twist arms and do some you know, the political stuff wasn't yours, obviously, right. but the direct information was going to, mm -hmm. you know, you know, say something for it. How did you see those things at the time? Obviously, it depends on the country. 
and the yeah. existing relationship that we have with that country. Uh, sometimes, um, I mean, some of them are obvious. The relationship with Great Britain, for example, That's is ongoing, That's and we work together all the time. There are other countries that something might be happening behind the scenes that they wouldn't want it to be public knowledge that there was cooperation, but there would be. And then in other cases, just no cooperation at all. And that's part of working intelligence is that we're there to, part of our job is to support the policymakers, our own government and working with other governments and to share information as, as possible and to work with other countries. How did you handle, I don't know, an assignment or, or something mm -hmm. that came across your, your table that went totally against your belief system as far as you did not agree with this? Because I had those a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And the job's the job. Right. You know, and, and uh, mine definitely different than what you would have to experience. I was more boots on the ground. You were more, you know, the intelligence aspect. Was right. it difficult to separate that at times? Well, to be honest, and maybe I'm even naive now when I look at it, but I never really had anything like that. Hmm. Um, as I said, I always looked at it from the perspective of the goal of protecting people from being killed. There you go. And in keeping that in mind, that was my primary objective and, and the reason that I was there and what kept me going. But eventually what happened was um, I thought I'm exerting all this time and energy and that's a worthwhile goal but something started to happen inside of me where I thought hmm, if I'm going to do all of that and exert all of this it should be for something even greater and I didn't know what that meant eventually what it meant for me was to devote my life to religious life and priesthood that's incredible. I'm really enjoying this conversation. I know the listener are, too. You're li you are listening to Life on Ed. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Father Joseph Nayrod, from counterterrorism expert to priest. <laughs> we haven't really bridged that gap yet, but we will, and we'll be back in a few moments. Hey everyone, Steven Singer here. Join me Saturdays from 3 to 5 p.m. for Reconstruction, remix music show with yours truly. Futuristic beats of back-in-the-day music, exclusive to WCHE 1520 AM, the talk of Chester County, and WCHE1520.com. Pete Vasali, the freshest sports voice on WCHE. You better earn that $60 million if you think the Lions are going 16-0. I think he might have a substance abuse problem. The rawest sports opinion in the Delaware Valley. How many hockey players do you see getting arrested for beating their wife? Drug charges, steroid charges, substance abuse policy, acting up at the club, smacking around strippers. You don't see that from hockey players. It's a different breed of athlete. The Sports Drive. Hosted by Pete Vasali, Monday through Friday from 2 to 3 p.m. and Saturday from 5 to 7 p.m. Pay attention. These guys are out there for love of the game. The Sports Drive is the vehicle of the real Philadelphia sports fans. Are you looking for the latest in health, inspiration, lifestyle, and entertainment? Tune in weekdays at 6.30 a.m. for The Brin Project. You can find out more about what's coming up on the show at facebook.com slash The Brin Project.
Welcome back to Lifeline Edit. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Father Joseph Nayrog. And again, if you're just joining us, you're wondering, why is John playing Secret Agent Man? <laughs> well, the good father was a worked in counterterrorism to the United States government before he became a priest. <laughs> so we're kind of moving our way into that next direction. But I wanted to, to bring a couple of things up. China, June of 89. Mm-hmm. Revolution going on in uh, in uh, Tiananmen Square. Right. I saw us kind of, if you can, however you can answer this question, that kind of came out of left field to me. I don't remember it being like a build up like we saw in Egypt or we're seeing in uh, you know in, in uh, uh, Libya or what have you. Was there more known before it happened? If you can say, was there? It wasn't as shocking to you guys as it was to us. Well, again. It, that particular issue, mm-hmm. China, would not have been something on my okay, so radar. Okay, so didn't really. touch that at all. But I would say that, uh, in, if I remember it from my own experiences, that there were some similarities to what we've seen more recently. I mean, Egypt didn't happen overnight, but on the other hand, it happened all rather quickly. It yes, moved very from Tunisia quickly. to Egypt and then to Libya. So these things do seem sometimes like they come out of nowhere, and even those people working on it probably are surprised by the... Uh, the way it sort of snowballs and, and how it, 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 yeah, it's hard to stay on top of something that's changing by the minute, basically. Well, it's kind of like when the, uh, you know, when the wall came down. Mm, yeah. I, you know, that, that was out of nowhere. I mean, I don't, again, if you, I know you didn't work in that field, right. but you might have an opinion on it. I remember, you know, uh, being, you know, woken up by my, you know, by my roommate in the military. He's like, he's like, check this out. I'm like, check what out? All of a sudden there's people with jackhammers. Yes. And yeah. I'm like, wait a second, you know, 24 hours, 72 hours ago, this, this wasn't even a thought. That's right. There were some things that built up to that in terms of things that were happening in Eastern Europe. But again, things take on a life of their own very often in the world. Some things just can't be predicted. And, uh, you know, I guess that's what keeps it interesting, too. It, it definitely does. I guess, I mean, you're, you're, you're a part of history. Right. I mean, every time you do something, whether mm-hmm. we know it or not, mm-hmm. on the outside, you're, you're part of history. That's you're changing right. the course of what might happen, mm-hmm. or you're putting the seeds at least into it. Right. At that point. Did they ever let you out of the bunker? <laughs> I got to travel a lot. I was going to wonder, did he get yeah, to travel a lot? I got to travel a lot. See, but you know, all the different continents and so forth? Yes. What, what happened was, um, in my career, once I got to Defense Intelligence Agency, after I was an analyst for a couple of years there for my final nine years in the government, I ran the government's counterterrorism training program. And that program was based out of DIA. We were the lead agency for all analytical training for counterterrorism. So we would train military personnel from all the services and from all the different government agencies. So I worked with people from FBI, State Department, CIA, Secret Service, and we would do the courses in Washington, D.C., but we also had a mobile training course that we would take around the world, and primarily where we had uh, personnel stationed large, uh, like Britain, Japan, uh, Italy, so I had an opportunity to travel a lot. But Italy had its problems at one time, too, if I recall. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were some issues. I remember watching Poland growing up, watching, uh, I think it was his name right, Lech Wałęsa. Solidarity. Solidarity, yeah. Up becoming president of that place. That's right. Am I correct That's on that? Right. Yeah. Um, you now I kind of want to make the the transition now. <laughs> this is the transition that I have to make. Okay. You was it a couple years before you decided to get out that you had this that you had the calling to become a priest? I mean, if people who aren't Catholic and I was born and raised Catholic, and, and mm-hmm. I can only explain it this way. I never felt the calling. I was an altar boy, mm-hmm. but I never personally felt that calling. I know some people who did. Right. 
do you think the calling came more out of your experiences and what you were doing? Because what you were doing was definitely, you know, dangerous and probably horrific at times, too. Mm -hmm. Is that where you felt that calling? Or was it before, years ago, but you kind of stifled it away, pushed it away? As I look back on it, um, it was early on when I was growing up. Uh, I also was an altar server, a lector when I was in grade school, etc., and many people would say, oh, I bet he's going to be a priest. And I would pretend I was playing priest. And my cousins, I'd make them dress up like nuns. And we'd pretend <laughs> we were running a school. And they, at, at my going away party in the government, my cousins embarrassed me and put beach towels on their heads pretending they were nuns like they used to do when we were little. That's good. Um, but that really kind of went away once I got into uh, high school, especially was looking forward to this career in foreign affairs. I wanted, again, travel, see the world. And so I just pushed it aside, so far aside that I never really gave it much thought then until 1996 I worked the Atlanta Olympics I was asked to go back uh, I did training first of all but then they asked me to work in the Olympic Intelligence Center representing my agency which was a great thrill for me I got to go meet people from all over the world wow. go to the different events uh, we did have the Olympic Park bombing but yes. that was determined rather quickly was a domestic incident and so my working in foreign intelligence I had to pull back not be involved at all well, with there that. There was an intelligence problem there with that that poor guy right. was Jewel, Richard yeah, Richard, he mm -hmm. was pretty much you know ostracized from everybody and mm -hmm. blamed and mm -hmm. they finally figured off it was that Rudolph guy right. who did it who had delusions of grandeur that were beyond comprehension right. there to me mm -hmm. that specific thing to me mm -hmm. uh, with Jewel tells me that intelligence is, is, is only as good as the people that are gathering it <laughs> without emotion Right now that's got to be one of the most difficult things because here's two different things again with your personality mm -hmm. What you did, you had to divorce yourself of emotion, you know, what you did for the government. Mm -hmm. But then as a priest, it really is all about emotion and how you interact with people. Right. I mean, I, I have to believe if you came with the government side to becoming a priest, you brought that personality, I, you wouldn't be that good of a priest. At least you wouldn't be someone that I would want to interact with. Right, right. You know. Well, I guess in some ways I have in my personality, I love doing analysis and that figuring out. Um, but even more so, what I discovered in this whole process was I love working with people. And one of the things that I enjoyed the most in this government job when I was doing the training is I was interacting with people all the time. And in, in that process, I would have people come to me in between classes or if it was a mobile course as I got to know them. And interestingly, they'd often tell me about their personal issues work-wise, family-wise. It was almost like I'd be doing counseling on the side. Well, that, yeah, I'll tell you something. I'm not, you know, I... I talk I obviously do radio mm -hmm. I'm in sales and marketing but some of the stuff we've talked about I haven't brought up in years mm -hmm. and I was saying before you have that disarming way about you <laughs> which I think served you well in both right plays you know both areas of your life right disarming you know you're not a threat which I think is really good in the kind of work you used to do. You, you kind of, you know, you're kind of like, okay, you know, he doesn't look like a threat. You know, we'll kind of, you know, we'll just kind of move more around him. But uh, what was the um, what was the shock? How was the? How did your parents take it? How did your your colleagues take it? Because they, they had to see it the way I see it. I mean, all of a sudden, well, well wait a second, Joe, what, what's going on here? Right. Well, just again, as I came out of that Olympic experience, it was unbelievable. I thought, here, I'm at really the height of my career, and I'm feeling, starting this nagging feeling of, I'm not doing what I'm meant to do in my life. It took a while to really work through that, so I didn't really talk to a lot of people about it. There was an Air Force chaplain at DIA who I met with on a regular basis. He was sort of my sounding board. I went off on all my friends and family 
family laughs because they've heard this story so many times, but I went out. He advised I should go away for a little bit and think this through, so I went on a hiking trip with a buddy of mine in the Air Force out in Colorado. It was my first time out there, and I had an experience up in the Rockies that wasn't like St. Paul yeah. being knocked off the horse. But for me, it was like that aha moment where I looked around and said, God is unbelievable, and I really need to do something about this. So I came back to Washington and called my best friend from St. Joe's, who's now the director of admissions at Villanova, Michael Gaynor. Yeah, we're talking about him. And he's yeah. just a great guy. His family were... were um, they are like family to me. Uh, anyway, I, in talking to him, I said, Michael, I, I've got to ask you, is there somebody I can talk to with the Augustinians? I knew of the Augustinians from having gone to St. Joe's. And the I wanted to ask the lead in for that. Could you tell mm -hmm. us what the Augustinians are for the people who are not Augustinians are the, the Order of St. Augustine, and mm -hmm. one of the things that we do is Villanova University. Uh, we staff there, and president of Villanova is Peter Donahue, an Augustinian, et cetera, work closely. Um, so we, we're, we're an order that's involved in teaching and working in parishes, and that's what I currently do as pastor of St. Thomas of Villanova in Rosemont. But it's, the official name is the Order of St. Augustine. And we look at our spiritual father, St. Augustine, which is a whole other story. But yeah. his, uh, his you know, confessions and the way that he came to, to faith and is, is quite interesting and appealing to me. And so um, at Michael got me in touch with the Augustinians, and one thing led to another. And I finally had to tell my parents. Um, and... My mother had battled cancer for almost 14 years, Wow! and I expected her to be the one to react emotionally, and she was rather even-keeled. She was very happy about it, but my father is the one that broke down on the phone and, and actually had to hang up because he was so emotional about it in a positive way. Yeah. Um, but he had kind of uh, admitted to me that he had been praying that I might find... Uh, my my real niche in life. He he always supported me with the foreign affairs thing, but I think he saw something obviously. And interestingly, all my government uh, friends and and colleagues, be it Catholic, not Catholic, agnostic, you name it, were completely supportive in all of this, which was amazing because that doesn't always happen. I think your personality lended itself to that. Well, it, thank it, you, but no, definitely. I again, you don't you come across as a very peaceful. Relaxed man, <laughs> I, and, and don't miss. I, I envy that. I, I envy that. I'm at 43. I'm searching for that aspect in my life. Were you kind of in the same realm of, of uh, your personality, your your center of your core, back when you were doing uh, the previous kind of work, or was that always something nagging? Um, I think the the nagging, as I said, just sort of came on. I can't describe it except for the fact that, you know, once it hit, I knew I had to do something about it. And, uh, again, it took two years of discernment, really, figuring out if I was going to leave the government and pursue this. Well, that's and, a good thing. You don't want to jump. Oh, no, so absolutely jump. not. I mean, that's right. It could be an emotional moment that's you're right. having. You want to give oh, everything up. And plus the Augustinians would want to make sure of that, too. There's a real um, process that we follow as we vet candidates, et cetera. And so I finally submitted my letter of resignation and I told people it's like I had an out-of-body experience. I'm signing the letter of resignation. I'm halfway through my government career. I kind of envisioned I'd turn 55, travel the world on my retirement, et cetera, and here I am. Ultimately, like anything like that, it's a leap of faith. And so I was accepted by the Augustinians, and in that summer I left the government and joined in August of 1998. So... Well, that's good. I, I'm looking at Bryn there. We're going to roll into a break. we got to pay some bills here. You're listening, listening to Lifeline Ed. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is a dual man. He's a, he was a secret agent man to some degree. Father Joseph Narog. He has gone from counterterrorism expert to priest. We'll be back in a few moments to finish up this conversation.
Enjoy food, fun, music, and friends while supporting the good works of a great local charity by attending the 5th Annual Friends of Safe Harbor Spring Celebration. The event takes place Saturday, May 14th from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. in the QVC Atrium at 1200 Wilson Drive in Westchester. The celebration includes live and silent auctions with items to bid on in all price ranges. Enjoy music, light refreshments, and complimentary beverages. Tickets are $75 per person. RSVP before April 30th and save $5 per ticket. All ticket and auction proceeds go directly to Safe Harbor of Chester County. And if you're a WCHE listener, you know the good works of Safe Harbor. They provide shelter and encouragement for the homeless to help them rebuild their lives. And Safe Harbor has provided over 125,000 nights of shelter for those in need. So support Safe Harbor of Chester County and we'll see you at the Spring Celebration May 14th at the QVC Atrium. Sit anywhere you like, that booth by the window or a seat at the counter. Hi, I'm Libby, and Libby's Luncheonette is open and serving up local sustainability from farm to plate. We'll have home-cooked conversation, eats, and tips that focus on our local food system and how sustainable choices can positively affect our personal, community, and ecological health and well-being. You'll always run into friends and neighbors as well as the local who's who. Your calls are always welcome. And that's Libby's Luncheonette, Mondays from 12 to 1 on the Talk of Westchester, WCHE, 1520 AM. Each year in Pennsylvania, thousands of children are sexually abused. All adults share the responsibility to keep children safe. You can help by attending the Vision of Hope Gala and Auction, Saturday, April 30th at the West Shore Country Club. Vision of Hope, a project of the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape, invests in solutions that protect all children from sexual abuse. To register and to learn more, visit theirhope.org. Every child should live life free from sexual abuse. www.theirhope.org. Hello everybody, I'm Bill Dance. I've been called America's best-known fisherman, but I'm also a proud Mahindra tractor owner. I recommend the Mahindra Red Tag Sale for big discounts on select Mahindra tractors this month only. Superior value is how Mahindra became the world's number one selling tractor. So hurry in to your Mahindra dealer and reel in a great deal during the Mahindra Red Tag Sale. Visit MahindraUSA.com for details. <laughs> I don't think Brent understood why I wanted this song. <laughs> now you get it? There we yeah. go. <laughs> You're listening to Life Let Ed. I'm your host, John A. Really, today my guest is the dual personality. <laughs> it's a split personality. Can we say that? Kind of like Sybil? No. No, not like Sybil? No. Oh, you're not like Sybil? I hope not. <laughs> no, I don't think so either. Bobby Joseph Dayrog, who in a previous life was worked in counterterrorism for the United States, who in the second half of his life now is an Augustinian priest based out of Villanova, we're trying to merge the two personalities right now. I think we've done a pretty good job, actually. I hope so. I think so. I, I think, I think, you know, it's funny. If we hadn't spoken the way we have the last couple months mm -hmm. prior to the interview, I would have expected something different. Now, I don't know what you expected of me, but I expected some. I would have expected something much different. But having spoken to you, and I told you many times, the calming effect. 
I get off the phone and they go, wow, I'm going to take a nap. <laughs> I said, I mean, in a bad way. It's like, I'm so relaxed. Wow. And my wife was like, you look relaxed. I said, I'm relaxed. Those that know me would find that pretty funny. I, I, you know, maybe you're a spaz on the outside. <laughs> I don't know it. But when it comes to interacting with me for the last couple of months, you seem different. 9-11. Mm. Mm -hmm. You told me you were in Washington. You taking vows? I was, mm -hmm. yeah. I was renewing my vows, actually. I was in what we call simple vows at that point before um, you, you take your solemn vows. You take simple vows. Each year you renew them for three years and then take your final vow. So I had actually was at home at the time. My mother had passed in June of 2001. Okay. Three weeks later, my father went in for hernia surgery, and they discovered a mass in his right lung. Jeez. So the Augustinians allowed me to stay on with my father to help him through to figure out what we were going to do. And it was in that period I had to get back down to D.C. to renew my vows on the 10th of September. And I stayed on into the 11th and uh, remember from the house where where we lived in D.C., the Augustinian College, from the roof, you could actually see the smoke coming up from the Pentagon across the city. Uh, and we were glued, like everyone else, to the TV. But I, I think I had mentioned to you in a previous conversation yeah. that that was the one day since I had left the government that I wished that I could go back and try to do something. Well, in my opinion, in kind of a dual-purpose way, you, mm -hmm. you, you probably ministered to a lot of people uh, in some capacity, of course, of what happened, be it pe friends of yours or be mm -hmm. it people who were just somehow associated with that horrible day, you know, yeah. we're coming up on 10 years. Yeah. You know, I, I don't, know, believe. don't know how much it's changed. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm looking forward to the uh, new World Trade Center being built. Mm -hmm. uh, my wife's not too happy because I'm saying we're going to the top, and that's not here. And I am. I, I, I don't live in fear of things. Mm -hmm. And for me to go up there, uh, that's what I would do. Now, I always had this fantasy. It's a fantasy. I'm on the top floor. Is this confession? It is. Well, <laughs> I guess it's kind of. Maybe it's a wrong thing to fantasize about. <laughs> but I'm on the top floor, one of the top floors up there. I'm a big businessman. I'm a small businessman now, but I'm a big businessman now. And I'd have like foam middle fingers around the windows. That sounds horrible, does it? Because the planes, I mean, I just want to let people know that's it, you know? <laughs> I know it's sick. I know it's sick. But it is a little bit funny. No, it's not funny. Well, okay. yeah, I mean, <laughs> no, I'm just saying the way I see things, mm -hmm. I don't walk around living my life in fear. And obviously you don't either. No, I think that you have to you know, obviously take certain precautions depending on where you are, but I would never live my life in such a way that uh, I would tell people, again, you, you want to be prudent, you want to be cautious, but not to the point where we would actually, in many ways, allow the terrorists to win. Uh, and th another thing, a point I would make about that too, and this, I don't want to get political no, it's too okay, much, by all means, get political. Ju just the fact that we never want to stoop to the level of um, sort of denying the rights that we enjoy as a country and as citizens of this country for the sake of fighting terrorism. I mean, there are certain things that we have to do, undoubtedly, and having worked in the government, I realize that. But I just think that uh, we have to be careful that we remember what it is that we're defending. Again, if you can or can't answer this question, mm -hmm. it's up to you, however you want to view it. Is security good now? Better? Is, is it something that we can live with? I mean, nothing's ever 100%. That's right. Yeah, I mean, nothing's... I mean, something, God forbid, law of averages could happen at, at some point. As I said earlier, they have to be right once. I know. We have to be right all the time. I know. And, and that's, to do that all the time is extremely difficult. That's what scares me. I get upset with people 
uh, when I'm getting on a plane mm-hmm. and uh, they got to go through security checks. And look, I don't like taking my shoes off. Okay. I, I really don't feel like standing in front of a monitoring system being x-rayed or something. I've seen the x-ray systems. I don't think they're as graphic as people think. I really don't. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if you want to fly, this is what the price is now. Because mm-hmm. these will be the first people that are complaining if the plane's taken hostage. You're like, oh, I did that. Well, that, that's how it works. Yeah. Now, uh, emotionally, uh, 9-11, did it affect you? I mean, really affect you as far as how you to push your faith even stronger? Well, it was a combination of, of 9-11 happening and then just in my personal life. As I mentioned, my father had then proceeded not long after that to go into the hospital for surgery. The surgery was successful on the lung and they got the tumor, but he had complications and was in the hospital for 130 days and never came home. So I was dealing with the death of my mother, 9-11, the death of my father. Um, so the Augustinians, again, I knew it was the right fit for a number of reasons. One of was the support I received during that time uh, in visiting my parents when they were ill and when they were dying, my brothers that came to see me. And then the fact that uh, afterwards I was allowed to take a semester off and sort of regroup uh, just to kind of you know deal with the house. I have one older brother, my brother Felix, that's trying to work through everything. And um, it was an important period for me to kind of get my life back together, and I then went back into my studies and went on from there and was ordained in June of 2005, so I'll be a priest six years wow. in June. Congratulations. Thank you. Up. That's Thanks. excellent. That's excellent. He's, I told my aunt, who's a devout Catholic, that we'd be speaking, mm-hmm. and she's asked me to uh, be able to send the show over to her at some point this week because uh, it was, it was, it, it's weird how I found you. I went looking for a counterterrorism expert. This is the truth, because I wanted... No, I did. It's the truth. The Brent's looking at me. I literally typed in counterterrorism expert, mm-hmm. and you popped up. Wow. And I, you popped up. might not have been the first page on Google, but it was within a couple pages. And I see this, I go, well, you got to be kidding me. Because there was a guy I did want who had written some books about it. Mm-hmm. But when I spoke with him, I, I realized pretty quickly I couldn't mesh with his personality. It wasn't going to work. And I uh, kind of pushed him to the side. Well, no, you came out perfect. I, did, I didn't expect, I don't know what I expected, to, to talk to someone who has switched over the way you have. Uh, family members, friends, previous friends in the work. You still stay in touch with your Yes, I do. Yep, definitely. So you still stay in touch. Mm-hmm. When you watch something like, like the Egypt situation right now, uh, or uh, Libya or what have you, you look at it differently than the rest of us do, I would assume. Again, you can't. I know you're not going to be saying, but I assume you see it from a very different angle. Probably, probably you're further step back from it, taking in the whole picture, where the rest of us are right in front, and we're just going with what we see. Mm-hmm. I definitely um, wish I had more time to sort of follow. I still love foreign affairs. I get foreign affairs journal, for example, and try to There's read such a journal. What I can. There is foreign affairs. Is there a spy journal? Uh, there probably is well, a solid sure. journal for everything, but uh, the trouble is, is that in my current position, especially, uh, there isn't a lot of free time. My cousin, we would laugh about this, but when I first became a priest, she said, "So, what do you do all day between masses?" I was going to ask you that. What's your typical? Oh day? my goodness gracious! You know, there is so much. Probably people don't realize, but um, there's everything from visiting the local nursing homes. We have hospital duty, uh, working with the youth group. We would have our meetings, pastoral council, finance council, uh, 
you know, the other sacraments, reconciliation, this Lent, we've added the times for reconciliation. We really felt that there, there's a real need in our church and our world for that, and we're, we're promoting it. And uh, there's just, you know, individual counseling sessions and work with the university, work with the archdiocese. Uh, there's just a lot of things that we do. But the thing I still love and enjoy most of all is the working with people and, and my time being with people in the most significant moments in their life. When a baby's born, when uh, someone is ill, when we do their funeral, when we celebrate a wedding, there's nothing quite like that. And people will ask, you know, do I ever regret the switch? And as much as I still enjoy following the news and the world and all of that, uh, there's nothing quite like it. I, I wouldn't ever uh, switch. See, I don't think most people would, would uh, knowing your history, would look at you as a people person. They would think that way at first, mm-hmm. because you would think it's someone again in a bunker somewhere analyzing information mm-hmm. and then sending it out to the appropriate, you know, us, you know, people that need it. Mm-hmm. You just happen to be a different kind of person, which is good. Well, obviously, it's good. You, again, that dual personality. I mean, my personality is kind of over the board, too. <laughs> it is. I mean, we'll talk about, you know, like handicapped people, business. I'm kind of all over the board, too. But it says a lot about you as a man and a lot about you as your faith. And I'm saying that because I've gotten to know you a little bit. I mm-hmm. think, I personally think what you've done and who you've become, again, you don't owe me anything. I'm just explaining myself. I think it's very rare. Yeah. I think it's very, very rare. It's definitely, um, grace is a large part of this. There's a prayer that I found several years ago where each morning I start and it says, God, help me to share with the world the person that you created me to be. And I think our whole life's journey is discovering who that person is. And um, Now, i got a question for you here, too, because, again, coming from the Catholic faith um, and your work previously, burnout. Burnout Mm -hmm. as a priest. It's not uncommon. Mm -hmm. I'm curious because... Again, I don't want to go into the details of someone's confession, but in the outside world, or in the, the world here, psychiatrists, counselors, and so forth reach a burnout point. They take, they, they're actually in a situation where they can become depressed. Mm-hmm. How do you handle all the information that's coming into you that's, that could probably could be probably more negative than positive because mm-hmm. people are looking at you? Right. How do you handle that as a priest? Well, first of all, as an Augustinian, mm-hmm. if people wouldn't know, part of what distinguishes us as a religious order in the way that we're, we've been founded, one of the big things for us is community life. We live in community, so okay. I don't live on my own. There's uh, two of my brothers, Art and Alan, who uh, we live together. We form community together. We pray together every morning. We pray every evening after dinner. We share meals during the week. So we have an opportunity to talk with one another. And, and you know, we can't reveal anything from confession, obviously, yeah. or, or personal things that are told us in confidence, but we have an opportunity to talk about our day and how we're feeling, and it's really an opportunity to have people there that, you know, that love you and support you. It's like family for us. Yeah. Uh, and then the broader community of Augustinians here in the area, and beyond that, people that we were in formation with together, etc. My two classmates were still, we saw each other last night. Um, so we rely on one another, we support one another, and like anybody, we have to watch out for that balance of body, mind, and spirit, and uh, Sometimes it's easier striking that balance than others, but we do really try to emphasize that. What do you do for relaxation? You, know, you like sports? I do. Okay, that's great. We got a lot more in common now. We got we got a lot in common. This got me in, that's gotten me in trouble in my previous assignment. I was up in Andover, Massachusetts, yeah. and uh, the Patriots, of course, are yeah. the pro football team up there. Tom Brady and the Patriots, and I'm a New York Jets fan. So that did not fly well there, and it doesn't necessarily fly all that well here either. There aren't a lot of Jets fans in Philadelphia. They're secondary for me. 
yeah. if I have to have it, and I rooted for them during the playoff run. Mm-hmm. Uh, Got to admit, Rex Ryan's kind of an interesting guy. Sure <laughs> that whole thing was quite entertaining unto itself. Mm-hmm. But uh, baseball? I'm not really a big baseball fan. I'd say my biggest ones are pro football, college basketball, uh, having gone to St. Joe's and now being associated with Villanova. Yeah, yeah. Big five basketball, nothing quite like big that. Nothing like it. Old um, Palestra. Old yeah, Palestra. that was used to go to the games when I was in college. And one of the good things about being back in the area is a lot of my friends, again, from St. Joe's are here, and I've had an opportunity to, to see them and reconnect in some cases. They've gone through some uh, expansion over there. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, they have. Oldest played uh, field hockey for Drexel, and we played over there a couple times. They finally, the field took a little longer to get done than it was supposed to, mm-hmm. but they turned, they came a real nice field. Yeah. Real nice field. I mean, the whole bit, why St. Joe's? Out of curiosity, why you go back to your A-team, why St. Joe's? I applied to uh, several different colleges at the time. I really wanted to go to the Georgetown School of Foreign Service, as I mentioned, but uh, even for back then, I didn't get the financial aid or assistance that I would have needed. St. Joe's did offer, as well as, uh, believe it or not, Columbia, and I had to choose between St. Joe's and Columbia. Everybody was telling me, go with Columbia. My heart said, go with St. Joe's. And uh, I thought a transition from Pottsville, Pennsylvania, to the City Line Avenue in Philadelphia was probably about as much as I could handle at the point. Hell of a change, and uh, it was a great. I would again never regret it. It all. I when you look at your life, it all comes together. And when I look back on it, it it definitely was the right choice for me. As a country, right now, mm-hmm. um, with what we're doing in the Middle East, we seem to be sucked into two wars now and a conflict. The future. Where do you see us going? Again, your personal opinions, but I guess I'm asking also, in the back of your mind, your personal experiences. Mm-hmm. Are we on the right path, or have we overstepped our bounds and set ourselves up? <laughs> I know. I'm just again. However, you can word that within your, within your thought process. Uh, I know it's a difficult. I apologize. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put you on the air. Put you on the spot <laughs> on that one. Yeah. I just, I mean, again, I'm just curious. Mm-hmm. Do you think we're in the right place? I mean, in terms of what we're trying to do over there. I mean, let's face reality for a second. Right. If it wasn't for the oil, we wouldn't care. We don't care what goes on in Darfur. You rarely ever hear about Darfur mm-hmm. because there's nothing there that we need. There's no natural resources. So I think this is God's joke to put all the natural resources in the most difficult place in the world. And I guess somehow trying to find a way to coexist. Right. That's just my opinion. I think this, it's like <clears throat> you want this. We've given it here. You better find a way to make it work. Right. Well, if one thing I've learned in life and, and from the experience of what I did before and even now is that you have to be really careful to not paint the world or situations in black and white. I think that there's so many gray areas. It's so complex. And oftentimes I would look at things when I was working in the government and because of some of the things I saw, you'd have a more complete picture and maybe understand a little bit better what was happening. Uh, But also having worked in that area, and I think I had mentioned this to you before, is that we were there to support the policymakers, not make the policy. So even now I find myself reticent to say anything about policy because I I was so ingrained in me as an intelligence analyst and officer to not get involved in that process and to not, I mean, I had my personal opinions. Yeah, but it's hard to have those kind of opinions with kind of work you did. Right. I I had to be, you know, you really did have to work at separating out. And uh, it's something I've learned through my life, even in separating out now when, when, for example, I'm working with a a couple or a person that's having a personal issue to be there and present for them. You mentioned the fact, you know, about being calming and reassuring and at the same time, not allowing myself to become so involved in the situation that it's 
sort of takes over me as well. And that's a really thin line that I work well, and did, walk. But I understand completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, believe me, I understand completely. You have to, you know, what you did before, you said, was it, you know, you couldn't put it black and white. That would have been probably dangerous to your psyche. Right. To sit there and do that. Now, being a priest, mm-hmm. uh, in a way, the responsibilities might be even greater. Right. Because you're truly influencing a marriage that might be in trouble, uh, mm-hmm. someone who's, I mean, you've really had a lot of responsibility as far as, I mean, you got to be tired. I mean, you got, you got to be looking, just go, geez, somebody give me the bottle of wine. I got to get going here. Well, I think you would ask me a question a couple of weeks ago. What were my future aspirations? Yeah, that was my next question. That was my next question. And I said, I'm not looking for more responsibility. I'm looking for less. But, uh, I also think that, you know, we're given certain gifts by God and we're called to use them. And so that's, that's the goal. And you think you could write a book about your experiences? Now, now I know, I know that there's a lot of red tape to go through for that. I know you, you signed the disclosures and everything else. Uh, uh, I, I know a little bit from personal experience right. on that level, too. Mm-hmm. A lot of people write books, uh, CIA people, uh, operatives. I think G. Gordon Liddy wrote a couple books. Uh, got the pleasure of meeting him with a strange guy. Mm-hmm. Is it something you would want to do? About, you know, just telling your whole story. You get told it here, but you'd be able to write it. Last question before we break here, before we're done. Mm-hmm. Do you think you got a book in you if you wanted it? Do you have a title in mind? Secret Agent Man. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come up with one later on. We're going to roll out of here, Bryn. You've been listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest has been Father Joseph Narog, who was a former counter.